Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast about constitutional government beyond simply the courts. I'm Adam White. At the beginning of a new presidency, one tends to focus on the president and his administration, their policy agenda and their personnel. But the executive branch is, of course, only one part of our government. And even when we're looking squarely at the executive branch, the success or failure of an administration's agenda and the promotion of the public interest depends in no small part on the work of the legislative branch. So in today's episode, as Joe Biden starts his presidency, we're focusing on Congress, its power to write laws and spend money, its capacity for oversight, the Senate's power over executive appointments, and more. And to discuss all of this, I'm so pleased to be joined by today's guests. Sarah Binder is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and a professor of political science at George Washington University. Her writings on Congress range widely, but among her books and articles, to find thoughtful analysis of the legislative process, polarization, and gridlock. Sarah, welcome. Great. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined today by Andrew Rudolovich of Bowdoin College. He chairs the Department of Government and Legal Studies there, and his own research focuses on the presidency, both the work inside the executive branch and its relationships with the rest of government. Andy, welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, just a note for our listeners, when we first started planning this episode a few weeks ago, we didn't know who, who would have control of Congress. And we now know that the Biden administration will have a bare majority of the Senate and, of course, a majority in the House. And so let's just begin with a, an open-ended question. And I'll start with you, Sarah. What is the ideal relationship at a moment like this between a president and Congress in terms of cooperation and checks and balances? Well, it's a great and huge question. I would think about it, I guess, first off in, in this way is that I think it's very hard to have any single equation that's going to tell us the right the right balance there. I think in some ideal world, we'd like both a commonality of effort in order to, to figure out what are the problems Congress and here the parties agree on and where are the problems that they disagree on, let alone solutions to problems. I think we have this notion that uh, unified party control, and I think this has been much of the re- reporting of late this view how unusual it would have been for a new Democratic president not to have unified party control, right? For Democrats, you'd have to reach back, I think, to the late 19th century. So we're used to unified party control with the new administration. And I think generally, we probably overestimate how important that is. It does produce sometimes a common agenda, at least a common electoral interest of keeping in power. But unified party control is not a silver bullet. It's not a magic bullet. It doesn't automatically grease the skids for a new president and his party majority to secure their agenda. Andy, what do you think? Well, I mean, we know what relationship the president thinks is ideal, which would be lockstep loyalty from his partisans, especially when there is unified government, as in this case. Probably if we think about it more broadly, obviously, Partisanship, as Sarah alluded to, is one thing. There's something scholars have kind of clumsily called preferenceship, right? Which doesn't necessarily align exactly with party. We can think about the diversity within the Democratic caucus, for example. A lot of talk over the last couple of weeks before the inauguration about, you know, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, for example, being the boss of the Senate, given, you know, his crucial role in being the 50th senator. But of course, on some issues, a Democratic administration might be able to attract moderate Republicans to the fold. We could hope, given the rhetoric of unity and the very obvious need for unity after the events of the last couple of weeks, 
that, you know, maybe there are some issues that are, in fact, low hanging fruit where an administration can come in and win pretty widespread bipartisan support at the beginning of the administration. But, you know, the, the flip side is that partisanship has rigidified in the last number of years or decades, even gridlock has increased. And the sort of the way members of a party see themselves as part of the president's team is, you know, I think different almost in kind than it was, you know, in the sort of the classic accounts of Congress from the 1950s or 60s. So in that sense, we might see opposition for opposition's sake. Again, this comes back to president's desire to see no kind of leeway on their own team. And that's just not a realistic view of how Congress works. Now, we've seen, it's always seems a little extraordinary when you have a 50-50 Senate and the vice president as a tiebreaker. But President George W. Bush, if I remember correctly, began with, with that situation. And eight years before that, President Clinton took office with razor-thin majorities in Congress, which became a challenge when it came time to try to legislate that initial economic package. Should we think differently at all about this kind of just bare majority, Sarah? Are there any particular things to be on the lookout for? Or is this just, are we making too much of that distinction? So I think these slim majorities are really important to keep our eyes on. And and just to keep in mind, historically, if we take a look at the size of the majority party in the House and in the Senate, over the last several decades, on average, it's been shrinking. And at the same time as the popular vote for president has been shrinking as well. So the anomaly of 2009, where Democrats come in and, and get up for a brief shining moment to 60 votes for a couple of months. That was really out of the norm, right, as was the financial crisis that that provoked it. But 50-50 is really, really hard. And we can come to the House, which is also going to be very, very hard for the Democrats. But the issue here, I think, in my perspective, is that we have this notion, oh, well, Vice President Harris is going to be in the Senate presiding, breaking ties right and left. Well, that depends on a couple of things. First of all, that there are issues on which 50 Democrats are willing to stick together, unless there's an issue where Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema votes with the Republicans and Lisa Murkowski comes over. But more likely, in a normal legislative setting, we could come back to budget rules and so forth that allow a majority to work. But in a normal legislative setting, first, I can't do anything with 50 because you typically need 60. And we don't usually see majorities of 60. We often see majorities of 80 because we can get into why that, that is, but it's just, it just increases the difficulty on the Democrats, the pressure to stick together, and the fact that any Democrat could be number 50. It doesn't have to be Joe Manchin from West Virginia. It could be Bernie Sanders, right? And everybody, every senator can be willing to exact the price to keep the credit, but also obviously to get the blame if, depending on where, where Democrats are headed. Yeah, I mean, it does highlight the need for coalition management, right? Obviously, you want to have a majority. You get to organize the committees, you get to organize the agenda to a much greater degree than you do in the majority. Obviously, in the Senate, it's a little bit different than the House on both fronts. But, you know, the 2001 example you alluded to, I mean, remember what happened there. The Republicans under President Bush were not sufficiently attentive to Jim Jeffords of Vermont. He wound up leaving the Republican Party, right? He allowed the Democrats to organize the Senate. So that you wound up with divided government relatively early. I think it was about six months in to President Bush's term. Now, that was reversed in the 2002 midterms, and we can maybe work our way to the midterms in this discussion. But, you know, it does, as Sarah mentioned, really emphasize the senators already think they're pretty important individually. 
And this really is a situation where, well, they are. I mean, Andy, do you think that the leaders of the Democratic caucus and the Senate ought to keep their eyes on, on Senator Manchin at all times? I mean, do you think there is a risk that he'll pull a Jeffords, so to speak, and be, be recruited to the other side? Well, I mean, I imagine they've got their feelers out to Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins and others that they want to sort of bring in from the other side as an insurance policy. You know, if I were Senator Manchin and I wanted to become a Republican, I would have done it already, to be honest. So I don't know. <laughs> but yes, I, I think they will be pretty careful in terms of making sure that he and others don't feel blindsided about what's coming you know, onto the Senate floor and what they're going to be hoping that he will do. I would be pretty attentive. And I know that you know, the Biden administration is building out its legislative affairs team with an eye towards you know, the care and feeding of the whole Senate caucus. I wouldn't be surprised if they brought a West Virginian on board. <laughs> it might be a smart thing to do. You mentioned Senator Murkowski. We're recording this on, what is it, January 15th, a few days before the episode will come out. And who knows, by the way, what will happen between now and when this episode is released. But just a few days ago, Senator Murkowski signaled that she, in the aftermath of the, the raid on Congress on January 6th, that she had real qualms with the state of the Republican Party and, and possibly consider leaving. I mean, she's now, I guess, an independent of sorts, but she announced in a way her possible free agency or willingness to fully leave the caucus and, and caucus with Democrats. So that is a real possibility. Sarah, let's talk a little bit about process and beginning with the Senate's processes in a 50-50 split. I know people are wondering how the Senate would actually operate in that extraordinary situation. And people are looking back to what Senators Lott and Daschle sort of devised when the last time we saw this. I mean, do you have any thoughts on what the structure and process of the Senate might look like with a 50-50 split? And then maybe we'll look a little bit more broadly about the procedural debates that have long preceded this administration and this Congress and, and calls for procedural reforms overall and how the Senate works. But let's just start with the 50-50 Senate. How's it going to work? So the short answer is we don't know yet. Back the model we have, the only contemporary model we have is 2001, when Lot, the Republican leader, and Dash, the Democratic leader, negotiated what we call the power sharing agreement, which incidentally I always find sort of funny because there is power sharing almost all the time <laughs> in the Senate. But we call it the power sharing agreement. And the, the question was, since the Republicans had uh, Cheney and as vice president to break the ties, the assumption was that the majority leader would be Lot. But then what do you do with the rest of the organization of the Senate? Also, just to keep in mind, the Senate needs a, what we call an organizing resolution every two years, just basically to set up the committees. And that can be filibustered. So in that sense, there's always power sharing. Back in 2001, they decided to evenly divide the committees but to provide what we call a motion to discharge. That typically, you can filibuster the motion to discharge, which is why we don't talk about it in the Senate. But the idea here was they'd give each party the equal due in the committees, but they'd empower the majority leader in order to pull a bill out onto the floor. And there were some informal handshakes in other parts of that agreement, but the bottom line was that there was a just slight edge to the majority in order to organize, organize the chamber. So those negotiations, I assume, are going on now. It took a quite a number of weeks, I believe, back in 2001. So, And keep in mind, there's a provision that if one party or the other actually got to 51 <laughs> votes, the power sharing was null and void. So leaders are looking forward as well as thinking about what's going to happen here. Now, if we could go back in a time machine and find you in 2001 and tell you that today we would be looking back at those as the good old days 
of bipartisan collaboration in Congress in the aftermath of Bush v. Gore. Well, actually, those rules might have proceeded. Well, yeah, that was been the aftermath of Bush v. Gore and the aftermath of the impeachment trial. You would have laughed. But here we are. I mean, those are the good old days relative to now. Are there really any prospects for a settlement of this? Maybe give you and then Andy a chance. So they, they sort of need to. I mean, we all say that, well, committee assignments aren't so important in the minority party in the Senate as they are in the House because of all sorts of Senate rules and empower individual senators outside the committees. But I think lawmakers on both sides, senators on both sides want to have a committee home. And, and that can't be established until the committees are organized. And so that will presumably happen in some form. I think some of the bells and whistles that we saw in, in the 2001 agreement aren't likely to emerge. But keep in mind, we're in the middle of a pandemic hitting both red states and blue states. There are vaccines to be distributed. The economy is still not recovered. There are incentives on both sides here. Despite all the incentives we assume Republicans have for trying to regain control in 2022, if not before, there's an incentive to get the Congress up and running for sure. So I think that will happen. Yeah. Coming back to 2001, it's kind of interesting. I was just sort of having flashbacks, beginning of the 21st century, as you say, just past Bush v. Gore and the assumption that, you know, President Bush having won such a narrow victory was not going to have any kind of mandate at all. No kind of honeymoon. I remember some line, I don't remember whose line this is, but the line, you know, there, there's not going to be a honeymoon. This is barely a one night stand. And the president's, you know, popularity kind of reflected his election victory, which was, you know, sort of basically, you know, 50% minus one, I guess, at that time. And his approach to this, interestingly, as I recall it, was sort of to ignore that and to sort of move ahead as if he did have a mandate. He had been elected. He was the president. He had the powers of the presidency. And something that helped him was that his agenda, at least in the early going, was relatively bipartisan. No child left behind, right? The big education reform law took a lot of work, but was basically a bipartisan effort as it went through Congress. And, you know, you're talking about the good old days. Well, we had a budget surplus in 2001, right? Fiscal 2001 still had a surplus left over from the economic boom of the late 90s and the tax increases that had preceded that. And we had you know, money to give away. So that made it kind of popular, right? People jumped on. Now, the Bush tax cuts were perhaps bigger than many Democrats wanted, but nonetheless, a number of them jumped on board. So President Bush could make a plausible claim early in his administration to bipartisanship and to you know, working across the aisle, even as he didn't necessarily sort of pitch his agenda to that very middle, right? To, I guess it would have been Arlen Specter, who would have been the uh, Lisa Murkowski of that moment the senator from Pennsylvania. And I think Susan Collins was already there, right? And people sort of, all of them expecting to be the pivot point for policy. And indeed, they were not, right? President Bush really didn't believe in bargaining against himself, as I recall, was his phrase. So President Biden, I think, will approach things somewhat differently. But as Sarah alluded to, there is stuff that needs to be done that everybody of both parties want. People want vaccine, right? Now, we can argue about the level of COVID relief to the economy and to you know, whether it should be in the form of unemployment benefits or money to states and cities or direct stimulus checks. But nonetheless, I think on the whole, people like getting money. And it's a good thing to be able to provide your constituents in the middle of overlapping crises. And so I do think there is some room for, you know, President Biden to be working on a bipartisan basis at the beginning. Again, does he run out of that stuff fairly soon? Is there an incentive for 
Republicans, you know, as we saw even in 2009 in the midst of the Great Recession, an incentive, you know, in hoping to take back part of Congress and ultimately the presidency to oppose Biden and to effectively help him to look bad as things move along. I think in the short term, that's going to be less pressing, especially in the light of the last days of the Trump administration. But those incentives will return fast. And so I, I do think Biden needs to work pretty quickly. You know, there's a line, I think this is in Barack Obama's memoir, citing Rahm Emanuel. He says that, you know, the presidency is like a new car. It depreciates immediately as soon as you drive it off the lot. And even for an old hand like Biden, that's probably true. Let's stay on this for a moment before we get back to process. I guess I hadn't thought about it this way, but whatever arguments the senators might have about power sharing an organization, the urgency of the, the economic stimulus debates, the urgency surrounding the, the vaccine rollout and so on might just force compromise and agreement and consensus, not unanimity, but a critical mass of consensus faster than we'd otherwise expect. I mean, we look at what ha- how it worked in Bush and, and the legislation you're pointing to, the, the prescription drug benefit or No Child Left Behind, whichever one came first. I mean, that wasn't a crisis legislation. That was just something that they could rally people around. This time, they might be able to rally people around something with a real sense of urgency that could just help to grease the skids for at least more agreement up front. Or am I overthinking that, Andy? Well, I mean, that, that would certainly be the hope. And if I were the Biden folks, I would be aiming to put a package together that sets the agenda in just that way. You know, we saw his speech about, you know, almost a $2 trillion relief plan. And that, again, is, I think, only the first in a series of spending packages. He talked about infrastructure. Maybe we'll have more than a week of infrastructure. Who knows? But, you know, those things are, you know, areas where you might be able to attract bipartisan support. And given the state of roads, bridges, airports, railroads, again, President Trump intermittently talked about this. I think it is an area where if he had paid more attention to it, he might have had legislative success. That might, again, be low-hanging fruit that the Biden administration can take advantage of. The one thing I'd add when sort of thinking about the prospects of bipartisanship is I often frame it the other way, which is the critical issue is getting both parties here, in particular the Republicans, to the bargaining table, right? And so the question I always ask, which I think opposition parties ask themselves, is like, what are the costs of saying no, right? What type of blame do I bear for stopping a deal from happening? Right. And so and hard to know it at the time. But if we look backwards at that huge CARES Act in back in March, I think there was a pretty clear demand and fear of being blamed while the most of the country had just gone immediately into, into a shutdown that got Republicans very, very swiftly to the bargaining table. But fear of electoral consequences from their own party doesn't seem to have helped in the fall, let alone the, right, the spring, the summer, the fall until after the election, probably with eyes to the Georgia races. And so one question is just to keep in mind, how, how much pressure is there on r- Republicans from their own constituents to deliver something? And it probably won't be $1.9 trillion, but we could imagine McConnell's willingness to go to the bargaining table. I hope my imagination is correct, but I think that's like the, the type of electoral incentive that might get McConnell and the Republicans to the table. My notion a moment ago of this opening of bipartisanship, I guess that that crashes up against the impeachment trial we'll be, we'll be dealing with at the same time. But let's let's bracket that for a little bit. Let's just focus a little bit more on procedure. Again, there's been procedural reform debates surrounding the Senate for a very long time, especially focused on the filibuster and so on. And I'm, I'm curious, maybe Sarah, we'll start with you. What procedural reforms, if any, do you think are possible or likely that the Senate will undertake? 
And feel free to put on your prescriptive hat and tell us which you'd like to see, if any. So the way I see kind of the long, long history that gets us to today is that the Senate seems to be on a long, very slow march to majority rule, just very slow march. And we've seen some upticks in the last, over the last decade, right, with the nuking of the ability to filibuster judicial nominations, executive branch nominations, and then in the Supreme Court nominations. So the question is, and the demand from the Democratic base is to take the next big, basically final step of nuking what we think of as the legislative filibuster, which would free us, free the Democrats from always pursuing, necessarily pursuing 60, but trying to do things more by simple majority. What is on the table here, it seems, at least so far, it seems from the get-go that Joe Manchin and maybe Cinema Senator from Arizona aren't quite, and maybe Feinstein aren't quite so on board, to put it mildly, with doing away with the right to filibuster. I don't know. I think if it were to happen, it would be some constellation of outright opposition from Republicans that stymie even something like COVID relief and vaccine funding. So I guess I would put it this way. Steve Smith and I wrote a book about the filibuster. feels like the dark ages, but it was 1997, right? So, so it's been a really long time. And there was a Republican majority at the time. And the, the final chapter was the, of the book was about reforms to the filibuster to kind of make the Senate functional again. So since then, we've had Republican majorities and Democratic majorities, and I've tried to keep my political science hat on and be consistent, which is the idea that no, legislatures should take votes. <laughs> and the filibuster, what it is at its heart, is preventing a legislature from getting to an up or down vote. And for even just sort of basic reasons of accountability, we should probably want a legislature where senators <laughs> have to vote. And senators, especially when they're in the majority, like to say it's good to vote, but obviously Senators often change their minds when they find themselves in the opposition. But as a general legislative principle, I think it's a reasonable thing to aspire to for a national legislature. Now, I, I phrased the question in terms of process, but anything on the structure side? I mean, is there any kind of move to, to reorganize any aspects of the Senate or the, or the House's basic structure? Tell me what you mean by Sorry, I guess I mean committees, committee leadership assignments, the relationship between the leadership and the committees. So uh, the types of reforms that have been discussed by groups of members have focused first on the budget process, on finding a way to make it functional again in a pretty dysfunctional time. And then on the House side, there's been a modernization committee, which is a little more internally focused, but trying to get the House into the 21st century. Yeah, there's been some talk about additional staffing, for example, some of the, you know, what does Congress need to actually do a good job of legislating? And, you know, over time, indeed, it's, it's shorn itself of committee staff, shorn itself of outside expertise, and it probably needs to get those things back. Just wanted to, to note on the filibuster, and this, I think, gets to, to Sarah's principled objection to it, right? Part of the job of a party leader is to protect his or her members from ever having to vote on something they don't want to. And so the filibuster has served a useful purpose in that regard for a series of Senate leaders. On the House side, I guess the equivalent might be control of the Rules Committee. And we haven't talked really about the House, maybe because there almost seems to be no point sometimes, <laughs> but the you know majority lockstep so solidly ensconced. But every minority party complains that there are never any opportunities to vote on amending legislation. And I have to say they're right. The idea of open rules you know, all the stuff I learned in grad school about how Congress works, I'm afraid, has long been superseded by agenda control of a very tutorial way. And so 
you know, again, that is up to the majority. It's always true that a majority can rebel against the speaker, but the incentives to do that seem pretty low. And especially in the House, given the bitter feelings after January 6th, I think that's going to be harder to overcome. The other thing, and I think we're getting this way in the conversation, is to think about appointments, right? And how that process might work better, because there are some ramifications there, obviously for executive branch management and also for executive branch tomfoolery, right? With regards to the Vacancies Act, for example, and other manipulations. So that I hope might be something that's addressed. Let's explore the appointments question. Maybe we'll get back to legislative capacity. Now that I'm my newest colleague at AEI is Kevin Kosar. I'm hearing all about legislative capacity these days. And, and for our listeners, he's going to be on the podcast in about a month. We'll, we'll talk about the state of Congress with him as well. But let, let's focus on the appointment side of things. Under Senate Majority Leader McConnell, when it was a Republican Senate, the Republican Senate really prioritized judicial nominations and downplayed executive branch nominations. One time, Leader McConnell said something like, if I have to choose between giving floor time to a life-tenured judge versus the deputy assistant secretary of this or that, it's going to be an easy choice. I'll, I'll focus on the judge all the time. And from what I could see, I'm not a political scientist, but just watching from the sidelines, it seemed to me that it wasn't just that the Senate Democrats were sometimes blocking appointments, which we often heard complaints about, but it was that the Republicans themselves really deprioritized executive branch appointments in the Trump administration, to say nothing of not pushing back against President Trump's eagerness to just staff up the administration with, with acting officers. Andy, we'll start with you. On the appointment side of things, how should Senate Democrats handle the appointments issue and how should they balance it against other priorities, given that floor time on the Senate is is the scarcest resource in Washington? Yeah, and that's the problem, right? There's only so much time to do any of this. The incoming administration has lots of big legislative priorities. We've already talked about some of their likely agenda items. So you've got that, you've got appointments, you've got judicial nominees, and you have impeachment as you hinted at, right? And that's going to take up time right at the beginning, I assume, of the new Congress. All right, well, we're in the new Congress of the new administration now that we've come past Inauguration Day. So, you know, these are going to have to be negotiated pretty carefully. Again, the 50-50 nature of the Senate means presumably that uh, Senator McConnell will have to be pretty well included in how the scheduling is going to work. But, you know, I do think I don't have a number in my head as to the number of judicial vacancies that still exist. We've already seen, at least on left-wing Twitter, efforts to convince more elderly, democratically appointed members of the judiciary to retire or resign or take senior status, right? They're desperate to open up some slots for you know, their own version of 40-year-olds who are appointed and confirmed under President Trump. So that may actually take a little bit of time, right? I suspect that the Biden administration will be better than the Obama administration was in coming up with names quickly for some of these vacancies. But the vacancies themselves actually may be a work in process. And I really, and this is, of course, you know, where my academic heart lies, but in the executive branch management, it really is actually important to have the deputy assistant secretary of something in place, right? That sort of middle management is where the rubber meets the road with regards to implementation of policy. And so, you know, one of the problems the Trump administration had, especially, you know, early on was that it just had no one there to enforce its decrees. And so you had, you know, sort of cabinet secretaries who were confirmed hiding up on the executive floor of their secretariat, and then sort of no one below them. And then the the distrust, of course, in the Trump administration between the political appointees and the career bureaucracy was notable. That will probably be less 
in the Biden administration. But even so, you know, I think actually, again, not glamorous necessarily to spend floor time on those mid-level appointees, but it is important. And so I would actually encourage the Biden administration to be pushing for that as a percentage of floor time, you know, more than, you know, you might think instinctively. You know, Andy, I, I was actually going to turn to that point for just very briefly, looking at the Biden administration, I mean, turning away from Congress and just if you had a moment to advise the Biden White House on how they ought to prioritize this. I mean, you've written so much on the White House's management of an administration. Do you have any more advice you'd give the, the Biden administration on, on the appointment side of things? Yeah, well, they do have the advantage, of course, of you know the president himself having been in government forever, you know, and in the White House itself too for eight years, right? Not as the boss, but nonetheless, he got to know everybody in the Obama administration, and you know, you're seeing many of them now return to government. So maybe a little frustrating again to at least some of the people who are newer to the Biden sphere, but you know, a lot of folks who do at least know you know the processes of government. You know, are coming back. So I think that's actually important. I'd be curious to see sort of the level of centralization. We're seeing a number of czars being appointed, right? John Kerry, you know, Gina McCarthy, you know, people who are going to be de facto in the White House. I don't know where their office will physically be, but who will be effectively unconfirmed coordinators of administration policy. And, you know, again, their effectiveness will vary with how well the departments can do their jobs. So I, again, I would hope that they are, you know, reminding the Biden folks that, you know, they need to, to staff out the administration relatively quickly. You know, they're going to have, I think, just as a function of timing, you know, more goodwill from the, the wider bureaucracy than they might have. You know, I think we've got, even before we start thinking about the resistance, right, I think the civil service feels attacked by the last four years, you know, just in terms of, you know, salary and job stability the recent Schedule F executive order, and so on and so on. You know, so there are some easy things that Biden could do to make them happier. Even so, you need your political appointees out there. And so, again, that's the, a part of, you know, again, you only have so much time, but I think that is where the Biden administration should spend some significant effort early on. Sarah, you've given so much thought, too, to the appointments issue. How do you see this side of, the, of Congress's work? So first, I guess one observation just to tag on to everything that Andy has said, that if we're looking backwards, so McConnell is able to make a claim like, I really care about these judges, but I'm not going to spend much time on the under deputy, under assistant. In part, he could do that because the White House itself was on board with that set of priorities. And so the White House counsel under McGahn was gung-ho on filling the bench, for sure. President Trump seemed to have very little interest, let alone knowledge of (laughs) what all these positions was. And that clearly filtered out through White House priorities. And just looking forward, as Andy just did, Biden administration clearly has a much more robust view of the importance of the administrative (laughs) state and the need to have people, have your people in place in order to make policy change. I guess going forward, now that we're in a world of majority rule, so you only need a simple majority to confirm nominees. And now that we have unified party, right, the control of government here, it's a little hard to know. And we had the same configuration under the Trump administration for the first two years. Well, four years, because we had a Republican Senate. It's a little hard to know where the bottlenecks are forming and why, right? Because Trump kept blaming the Democrats and all of us would say, well, it's simple majority rule. The onus is on on the Republican majority. But there's a lot of variation in Congress's speed with which it was considering these nominees. And I think one thing as academic 
observers and folks who like to measure <laughs> what's happening here, there are a lot of unobservables here <laughs> that are tough to get our hands on. And that also has to do with the, right, the nature of these nominees. Some had quite a bit of baggage, which derailed them because some Republicans objected to them. Others had a lot of literal baggage in terms of financial disclosures that had to be done, and those arrangements seemed to have taken an awful long time. And my sense is that Democrats had slowed down, I believe, the process in order to have a better, basically, background vetting of those nominees. And none of that would appear in the rules, right? We can even go into the committee rules, but you and I can't find the point where it says the minority party is empowered to do X, Y, and Z. This is practice. It's a little cooperation, a little how much leeway will the majority give the minority. And it's hard to know systematically precisely what was causing those, those delays. Will we see those again this time around? I think less, much less so in part because I think the vetting on the, from the Biden administration, especially as Andy said, going back to so many folks from the Obama administration, except for the many of them, their lucrative employment in the interim term might slow them down. But my sense is some of that will be smoothed away. And Biden himself seems somewhat trying to balance the nature of these nominees for cabinet secretaries that he's been pushing forward. So my guess is there are fewer flashpoints and the president will be, at least for the top state, AG and so forth, that there'll be somewhat looks like deference to Biden. But the deference, I think, is there because the nominees will be a little cleaner with more government experience and, and so forth. When we first started looking ahead to this episode and, and, and right after the election, when it looked like you'd have President Biden and odds are a Republican majority Senate, I was very, very interested to see how the appointments, the executive appointments were going to work out. Now, obviously, that's a mood issue. But in that, that sort of the moderate grouping of senators, say, people be somewhere between Manchin and Romney with Murkowski kind of in, in the middle somewhere, they have an interesting question to ask themselves, right? How much deference to give to the Biden administration's nominees. Obviously, it's different for Manchin on the Democratic side of the line versus Romney on the Republican side. But if somebody in sort of the, within the 45-yard lines of the Senate, that those, those senators right in the middle, if a Republican in that group were to ask you how he or she should think about their consideration of President Biden's executive nominations, Sarah, what, what advice would you give them? So I think it is reasonable to think of these executive branch appointments as part of the, quote unquote, the president's team. And they are in the scheme of things, especially compared to judicial nominees, they're short timers. And in that sense, I don't think there's too much wrong with what appears to be the old norm of allowing a president to put his team on the field. And to the extent that we sort of struggle with identifying whether Manchin and the folks in the, in the 45, don't get me going on a football analogy because I won't get me very far. Something else. Sorry about that. Out, out, out of Enzo, whatever. <laughs> but the folks in the middle, I don't know that they're centrist or moderates or what about best, but they are somewhat establishment minded, sort of respect for the process minded. And my guess is those folks understand the norm and appreciate the fact that these folks aren't lifetime appointments to, to run HHS. So I think it's a reasonable, reasonable advice that senators should keep their eyes on what is most consequential to their own policy and electoral priorities. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that deference has been part of the defense, in fact, of some of those senators during the Trump years, right? Well, I always vote for who the president wants to put in these positions. That's certainly, you know, here in Maine, Senator Collins' position, you know, in taking some pretty controversial votes from a loud part of her constituency in the more liberal parts of the state, you know, she voted 
but she also did vote against a few people, right? I think, you know, if you're one of these senators, you're probably looking for people who make it easy for you to vote against them, right? And, you know, to take a few votes to show that you are clearly not a, a tool of the new administration, you are independently minded. But, you know, and often I think we've seen, you know, every four or eight years, somebody doesn't get vetted correctly or manages to screw up somewhere. You know, there will be opportunities to vote, you know, even, you know, for nominees for whom, you know, their, their flaws don't immediately appear. It seems to me that of the, the first crop of nominees, my personal opinion, the, the more controversial ones seem, former Congressman Becerra and Neera Tanden might attract some fire. And it'll be interesting to see how those senators in the middle sort of react to them and to what extent they use those particular nominations or perhaps others to signal the fact that they're looking at this independently, even if they ultimately vote against those nominees. But that's just my speculation. Andy, let's talk a little bit about the, the rest of a, of a president's agenda. President Biden comes to office. Democrats have a legislative agenda. The Democrats in Congress do. His administration has, surely has its own legislative agenda. But at the same time, his administration will, from the, its very first moments, embark on an administrative agenda. As soon as he takes his oath of office, we'll see a flurry of executive orders, and those will come out over the weeks to follow, pointing his agencies in, in certain directions. We'll see, for example, the EPA, I'm sure, will be very busy trying to undo the things that President Trump and his EPA did and, and chart their own regulatory course. And I'm just curious how the administrative process and the legislative process work on parallel tracks. Just as a practical matter, can they walk and chew gum at the same time, or does the progress on one side affect the other. And I guess here's where I'm going with this is take the climate policy as an example. President Biden has made clear this is one of his top priorities. The EPA and many other agencies will be very, very busy sort of trying to pick up where President Obama and his administration left off. At the same time, they may try for legislation. And I'm wondering if the energy behind the administrative side of things might relieve some of the pressure on Congress to do anything. I sometimes wonder if this is what happened in 2009 where Congress, a Democratic Congress debated climate policy for months and ultimately couldn't find anything for the House and the Senate to agree on. I always kind of wonder if perhaps the, the energy of President Obama's regulatory agenda took away from the urgency. I guess it's inevitable. The EPA is going to get started on its policies. But how do you see the dynamic between the administrative process and the legislative process? Right. Well, in a successful administration, they will work hand in hand. There'll be compliments as opposed to substitutes, I think. But we have seen, of course, in recent administrations, given divided government, especially from the midterm, efforts to use administrative action of various sorts to advance the agenda when really no legislative progress is possible. So, you know, the Obama administration is interesting because they pushed forward their stimulus bill, they pushed forward the health care, they pushed forward Dodd Frank and regulatory reform. And climate change, you know, the, I guess it was the cap and trade bill at the time that they were really pushing, you know, sort of was the, you know, it's just one, one too many things, right, for them to get done. And of course, they did sort of leave the house out to dry on that when it came time for the midterms of 2010. So some of it, obviously, again, is floor time, prioritization, how you set your agenda. Sometimes, of course, it's worth remembering that, you know, passing new legislation then leads to the need for more executive action, because you have to clarify what's been passed. And so actually, if you look at the literature on executive orders, for example, you know, the numbers are kind of hard to parse sometimes because legislation can lead to more executive action when we would expect sort of instinctively that, oh, well, if you can't pass a law, then you'll do 
something by executive order. And that happens too. You know, the Trump administration maybe was notable for moving to executive action quickly. And while it still had unified government in 2017-18, but I think you're right, every administration is going to move in that direction. And, you know, for the Biden administration, it's actually, you know, part of what their constituency wants is the rollback of a whole bunch of Trump administration action. Now, I hope they'll be careful and actually not sort of reverse things that might have actually been useful. But nonetheless, a lot of that clamor is for, and you mentioned the environmental space, I think that's really pretty high up on the list of, you know, Democrats who, you know, came together even from Biden's left to unite with him. You'll see that in immigration policy. You'll see it presumably in education and healthcare. But, you know, there are a number of places where, you know, any real solution to those issues is going to need legislation. Immigration is a great example of something that's just been sort of punted down the road with, you know, administrative efforts to move it in one direction or another, but not with any real deliberation or reform. So, yeah, I mean, I think you will see action on both fronts. I do think, you know, the regulatory Joe Biden is not going to be a deregulator. He's going to be a re-regulator in a lot of ways. And we can talk about, you know, how he might be smarter about that rather than merely reflexive. But, you know, that's where the demand is. And so to a degree, to satisfy his political IOUs, Biden actually needs to act administratively in a way that perhaps prior presidents didn't, at least at the beginning of their administration. Sarah, before I, I sort of give you the similar question, I'll just throw another data point out there. A couple of days ago, before we recorded this, I was hosting a panel discussion in my program over at the Scalia Law School. And I, I asked a similar question about legislation and regulation to Lisa Heinzerling, an expert on climate policy. She served in President Obama's EPA. And she really pushed back at the point I just made a moment ago. And she said, actually, I hope I'm getting this right. I hope I'm not butchering her point. But if I remember correctly, she said, you know, the energetic regulatory approach can in some ways be, you know, leverage for or, or otherwise energize the legislative approach, right? It's something that's happening there that Congress sees happening and, and might spur them to legislate. I don't know if that is anything further to consider or just in general, how do you see this issue from the vantage point of Congress? So I think the conventional wisdom here is largely correct, which is that the difficulty of legislating in Congress today and over the last decade or two, and I'd say maybe three, has changed attitudes about the importance of using the administrative state and regulation to make policy change, even knowing how temporary those changes can be, as Andy alluded to on the, on the immigration for sure, right? I mean, that was sort of the abject lesson of Trump administration and the fate of what happened to folks with, on the DACA who had DACA permits. And so it's almost as if it's been that gridlock. We have sort of anchored our expectations. We've lowered our expectations of what Congress can achieve, and it's increased the onus and the expectations of what we expect from administrations. The only thing, place where I think the conventional wisdom needs a little more unpacking, and I just raise it as a, as a question at this point, I think we have this notion that as Congress has been unable to legislate and a loss of power to the executive branch, often by delegating those powers explicitly. <laughs> to the legislative branch, that the executive has become so much more powerful. But I would suggest that maybe one of the learnings here from the Trump administration and from Obama as well is that it's, it's not all that clear to me that the executive branch has become empowered. <laughs> Just It's not a zero-sum game. I, I, I'm not sure it's quite a zero-sum as we, as we make it out to be, in part because of how short-lived some of these executive actions can be. 
And just to jump in on that, you have a uh, situation where, you know, an environmental policy, immigration policy, you know, these are administrations trying to regulate based on legislative frameworks that were written decades ago and haven't been updated and are really clunky. And so when, you know, the Obama administration tries to push its clean power plan or when the Trump administration does its own version of that, you know, they're putting it on this statutory infrastructure that's really vulnerable to court challenge. And right. So we've seen the courts really rise in importance. You know, maybe it's zero sum in three different ways or four different ways if we include the states. Right. Because the courts here have picked up a lot of responsibility, not really their job, in my view, but responsibility for trying to figure out, you know, whether these interpretations of old laws are valid or not. You know, Martha Durthick, the late great Martha Durthick talked about, you know, well, if we can't get a new law passed, we're going to find new meaning in old laws. And that's what administrations have been reduced to doing. But again, I think that tees it up for the courts and often, you know, means that, well, we saw this at the end of the Obama administration. I assume it will be true now as we move out of the Trump administration. Big administrative efforts that are effectively just sort of held up in court. New administration comes in, switches sides, you know, at the lawyer's desks, and suddenly we're back at square one. So, yeah, the president, I think, is certainly accrued authority and can act in ways, and some of these are at the margins, and some of them are actually pretty important substantively. You know, one irony of the Trump administration is that he really ought to have loved the deep state. Almost all of the policy achievements of the last four years have been administrative in origin. But again, they are subject to, you know, again, not just Congress, but to this check by the courts and to all the you know issues of court politicization that would be yet another podcast or two or five. It would. I, I'll just say, I can't help but point out, and I'm sure you two know as well, that especially with the new generation of, of conservative judges, and even with the previous one, there is so much more sort of increasing skepticism of agencies finding broad new powers in old statutes. And so if the Biden administration tries to pick up just where the Obama administration left off, they might have real trouble in judicial review. President Obama was running into some things at the end of his second term on the Clean Power Plan and so on. And so that'll be an, that'll be an interesting dynamic, but that, that is a different podcast. This podcast is almost out of time, and I, let's just spend a moment on the oversight issue. Sarah, how do you expect Democrats to go about overseeing a, a Democratic administration? What does that usually look like? What could that look like this time? Well, given that we have unified party control, we we know generally that oversight, at least the most visible oversight, tends to go down when it's a single party. If there's something that was driven home to me over the course of the Trump four years is legislative scholars, we tend to lump, and I myself included, we tend to lump uh, oversight into some single single blump, <laughs> blob, right? When it's both the classic oversight of bureaucracy and departments, separately, though, oversight of the White House, clearly that we saw in uh, Trump years but also then oversight of, of private, right, private actors. So my hunch is there's less of Democrats peering into the White House and the agencies and more looking into private, private issues as, as they arise. But also my hunch is there'll be an effort to improve the Inspector General's Act, because ultimately that's really like a key tool of oversight that I think often, again, legislative scholars sometimes lose, lose sight of, that oversight isn't really the hearings. <laughs> it's these broad arms that Congress has established and centered into these agencies to provide, do the oversight and information generating for them. But my guess is that will get some attention, but otherwise, much less so than clearly we've seen in recent years. Well, thank you very much, Sarah. And we'll give Andy the last word on this. Dave, what do you think? Well, so Sarah mentions the inspectors general. I'm curious. And at this point, you know, we don't know the answer, but 
will Democrats actually work to rein in the powers of the executive branch? You know, we've had, you know, years of sort of going back and forth where, you know, Democrats see all Republican presidents as dictators and all Democratic presidents as strong leaders. And then, you know, the script just flips, you know, when the parties change their position in the Oval Office. But on the other hand, you know, the last four, 12, 20 years have shown us that there are some things that really ought to be fixed. Some of the reforms of the 1970s, whether it's the budget process or the war powers, things about national emergencies, and then, you know, issues with oversight in terms of getting information out of the executive branch, financial disclosure, all kinds of things that we could think of that, you know, at least in principle could be bipartisan. You know, will Democrats be interested in joining in those kinds of systemic efforts now that there's a Democrat in the White House? I don't know. I hope so. Well, we'll find out. Andy, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks to our audience for joining us. As I said, we're going to have, we'll be returning to the subject of Congress in the, the months ahead. But also in, in the weeks ahead, we'll be focusing on subjects like the first 100 days of an administration and so on. There's much to discuss, and I hope you'll join us. But again, thanks again. This is Adam White on Unprecedential. 